Blog Talk Radio. I remember the rivers we had to cross. I remember thinking my soul would be lost. I remember the fighting screaming and the blood spilling on the ground. I remember the voices ringing out. Yes, I remember each sound. I remember the net that they caught me in. I remember plunging the knife over and over again. I remember looking at you being dragged in the sand. I remember the last glance as I was struck by a white hand. I remember falling into a low dream state. This was where the ancestors danced and the spirits lied in wait. They waited for us finally to arrive and showed us to fight to stay alive. The ancestors put power in me and gave me the voice to tell my story. My spirit calls out. My spirit calls out. My spirit calls out to thee. My spirit calls out. My spirit calls out. My spirit calls out to me. They tried to break my will with the chains that weighed me down across the sea. They tried to break my will by taking me for my family. They tried to think that they could take what God had given unto me. But they only rooted me in the spirit you see my spirit calls out my spirit calls out my spirit calls out to thee my spirit calls out My spirit calls out, my spirit calls out to me, plant my feet deeply in the sand, make this strange place your own land, live each day, taking the sand, Good evening, family. 
So glad they hundred children to join we this evening for this year's show, Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio. We're so glad they're hundred to tune in as we bring hundred this year broadcast from the place where the crime against humanity been a going on fuss in North America. True ya, true this year land, when now they did, the Gullah Geechee Nation Blood, sweat, tears, were sent down from the baby and thing. From we answer for them, when they walk, and they shall cry, race, in the cold, still afloat, and they'll beat the sinning afloat for them. But see, yeri we, yeri we, yeri we, no one on the beat, no one on the beat, no one on the beat. Never, never forget we, and this shall take, that call, the middle of passage journey. So this year evening, we the gear uplifting to the living legacy of here ancestral homage to all that will be crying in the middle passage and they'll come out. For all that, spirit walk back, I'll For all that, will be coming through San Bernardo and cast down all through these land. Or under the Yeti vote now. Or the Sea Islands. And things like that is. In what a girl get in So this year, you know, this year the queen quit. Head upon the body. But the girl get nation. So glad that I wanted to tune in to this year, girl get your rhythm radio station. As we the crack, we teach this evening about a journey where and never quite end for all of we. Because we ancestors, souls, and plenty of bones and things still alive in this year land. Eating water, we call the middle passage, where we take this journey into what others call slavery, you see. So this year evening, we want to chill for tuning a Lee while while we take this year journey for what we're going on all these areas that lead up to this year month. September, John will declare middle passage month journey to the kitchen nation. Start off in Fondina. Florida, where the southernmost part of the Gullah Nation. From there, going northward, on a going on up to Jacksonville, North Carolina, Jacksonville, North Carolina. And from there, from there going southward, you going with Jacksonville, Florida. All of this year, to the Gullah Nation. And then in front of the going 30 to 35 miles inland, you get the St. John River. Remember the river. We have a cross. Never thinking. We saw what we lost. Remember the fight. Screaming. Blood spilling from the ground. Yeah. Remember the voice and take the ring out. Remember each sound. So this year evening, half a going back a leave it in my own story for bring her up to this year day where we grind forward this year, Saturday kind. Three o'clock in Old Town Fondino. We're going to pull more libation for we ancestors them. Part of this year, middle passage ceremonies and mark a dedication time. We're going on it. So we want all the family for join we, Saturday kind. With the fact ensemble and the leaders of the Gullagichi Nation in Old Town. While they got this year, Viva event going on. We want them for. Live on the spirit of we ancestors. We're going to make up for member. All the black gold and black cargo were thrown aboard in the Atlantic Ocean. And the body of the turn up upon what American beach today. Fernandina beach today. All of that land, they were hundred years for pirates. The thing would have been a thief. Been a soul. The thing would have been a thief. Been a culture. The thing would have been a thief. The people knowledge. The thing would have been a thief. The truth. So this your day, we're going to take on a back from the ship in plenty of different ways. But want all our honor children with the outshone, all around the world and things like that. But I'll stand. Everything will require me to vote to see that. So in order to ensure that you under and overstand, I will speak in this language that my ancestors were forced to learn that my elders were forced to learn, that I and my classmates were forced to learn on the sea islands 
in the Gullah Geechee Nation, in the Atlantic Ocean. We live in and on what is the Middle Passage. And so when we talk about our story, when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, it is not just something of the past. It is not just out of a book. It is not just his story, but it is our daily journey. We walk over and through the blood, sweat, and tears of our ancestors. So that is why the Gullah Geechee Nation's leaders thought it not robbery to join Anne Chin and others who are part of the Middle Passage ceremonies and marker dedications going on throughout North America this year. And I will lead a ceremony this Saturday at 3 p.m. in Old Town, Fernandina, Florida, where so much of our story has still been covered up. But in 2007, there was a journey I took to London, England, because that was the year that was 200 years after the British abolition of the slave trade, where they were banning the transatlantic portion of enslavement. But that did not end slavery in the United States. Chattel enslavement did not come into an end by law until 150 years ago with the Emancipation Proclamation in the United States. But yet slavery is still legal in the United States. Chattel slavery at that time ended. But you need to read the Constitution of the United States and its amendments to grasp what I'm saying about slavery still being legal. But as we look back, and I have to go back and fetch it, Sankofa, we need to look at all the steps along the way, all the steps along the journey that brought us to this moment in time. So in my own story, there have been numerous steps along the journey. The Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition that sponsors the broadcast has the Gullah Geechee's Al-Kevulan archive, the only archive in the world dedicated to Gullah Geechee history, heritage, and culture. And one of the works that we hold within it was a work by someone who was enslaved, who journeyed through the Middle Passage himself, Equiano. He wrote, this produced copious perspirations so that the air soon became unfit for respiration from a variety of loathsome smells and brought us on a sickness among the slaves, of which many died, thus falling victims to the improvident avarice, as I may call it, of their purchases. This wretched situation was again aggravated by the galling of the chains, now become insupportable, and the filth of the necessary tubs into which the children often fell and were almost suffocated. The shrieks of the women and the groans of the dying rendered the whole a scene of horror almost inconceivable. Horror almost inconceivable. When we talk about the crime against humanity, the transatlantic slave trade triangle, chattel enslavement, and the Middle Passage. And we think of these words and we visualize in our minds a scene such as this. We must give thanks to God Almighty for the strength of our ancestors that survived that journey. And we need pay homage through a moment of silence to those souls and those bodies that yet still lie at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Ashe, 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 Amen. So when we begin to discuss the Middle Passage in my journey, there have been so many steps, there are too many to even recall in this moment in time. But I want to share something that is truly personal that I had to go back to and go back through a book that I keep on my shrine 
which is the middle passage by the late artist Tom Feelings, God Bless the Dead. And I keep this book there and have not pulled it down for many years to the point that I had to dust it when I pulled it down to prepare for this show. And inside I saw a newspaper article that at the top said, Seek and you shall find from the Island Packet dated May 21st. And this was from when the interfaith pilgrimage of the Middle Passage group had had students study what had come of what the Middle Faith pilgrimage had done and had become part of a documentary series called This Far by Faith, the African-American Religious Experience. And interestingly enough, I was contacted by the Interfaith Pilgrimage of the Middle Passage group to ask about being interviewed for that film to be in the segment about the Interfaith Pilgrimage. And it turned out that then another producer contacted me to be a part of the opening part of that documentary, which was called There is a River. And I ended up being in the first part and never ended up being called again about the Interfaith Pilgrimage component. But yet this Far by Faith, which was produced by Blackside, remained out there to talk about the faith that our people had. And this interfaith pilgrimage of the Middle Passage was a journey that people came together that were international. They were not only interfaith, but they were intercultural. And they took a journey walking backwards through the Middle Passage areas, backward through the places of enslavement, from Massachusetts down to the Gullah Geechee Nation and down through into Florida, and then took boats back across through what are the Caribbean Isles and then back over to the motherland. The purpose of the pilgrimage document was something I picked up in Harlem as I walked the streets to put out pamphlets about the Gullah Root Experience Tour that we still do even now with the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition. Picked it up because there was an image on it that represented the enslavement through the Middle Passage. And then numerous cities that were listed on it to which they were to journey from Massachusetts and into Rhode Island and into Connecticut and into New York City and then into New Jersey and Pennsylvania, Maryland, Washington, D.C., Virginia, North Carolina, to South Carolina, to Georgia, to Alabama, to Mississippi, to New Orleans, Louisiana. And they said the purpose of the pilgrimage was to offer prayers for the spirits of people of African descent who have gone before and to honor both them and their descendants who have suffered so much hatred and injustice at the hands of the white population, realizing that the spirits of the oppressors are also in need of our prayers. To open the way for all whose lives have been affected by this most egregious history, to engage with it, and especially to give an opportunity to people of European descent to take responsibility and to express repentance on behalf of the peoples and the civilizations of the West. The expression of repentance is a very necessary and therapeutic step for human beings. And in the case of deeply embedded history of racism, especially in the United States, it can help break the patterns of defensiveness, denial, and fear which form the unconscious underpinnings of a society still gripped by racism to reverse historical patterns by moving eastward to Africa, thus giving back the honor and respect pillaged from Africa along with its people and natural resources, to show gratitude and respect for the greatness of this continent with its diverse peoples and regions, to express our belief in its regeneration after centuries of colonial deprivation, to offer multifaceted educational opportunities on the institution of slavery to participants of the walk with the organizing volunteers and the community at large in order to create a context for the current state of global communities in an honest history to transform the thinking that spawned racism, namely the appetite for material power and luxury in Western nations, and the consequent reduction of human beings to the status of objects to be bought, sold, easily demeaned, and killed for profit, denying the profound and noble spiritual nature of all people. 
This materially based thinking continues today in domestic and international policies that relegate millions, mainly people of color, to poverty, even in wealthy countries like the United States. Hard pressed by these policies, too many are forced to use desperate means to survive, while the life-giving spiritual foundation of human civilization cultivated from ancient times is further destroyed. To find our way for the next century, we must affirm and respect the precious spiritual nature of all people, the true source of moral power to transform our violent, materially-based civilization. Now, it's deep that these were the five pillars of their purpose with the interfaith pilgrimage of the Middle Passage that left from Amherst, Massachusetts, all those years ago on the journey backward into the Middle Passage. When they left, they left me holding the book, The Middle Passage by Tom Feelings, that was autographed by various people that were on that journey. And one of them wrote, as our soul, as one soul in chocolate skin to another, you are doing God's work and we are all saved because of it. Thank you for listening to the ancestors and coming to us. You are a blessing to the universe, the pilgrimage, the sea islands, your family, and to me. And this was signed by Regina Woods of Brooklyn that put that into words. And there were so many other power-filled words on these pages that I leave it sitting on my shrine. And so when I opened it and off when I opened it, I look at the signatures and I look at the images that Tom Feelings actually drew from his soul. And... He happened to have left these words that were truly power-filled in the very opening of the book. It says, the writer Paul Marshall once spoke of the psychological and spiritual journey that we must take back into the past in order to move forward. You have to engage the past, she said, to deal with it if you are going to shape a future that reflects you. So when the sister gives me thanks for listening to the ancestors, I have no choice. The ancestors are around me and in me and speak through me and dance with me, dance through me on a daily basis. So if I speak not their voice, that means God has told me not to, and that has never happened. And so... As we take this journey through my journey going back into the past in order to help shape a future that reflects who we be down here, I thought it not robbery to pull from Tom Feeling's words where he says also, but if this part of our history could be told in such a way that those chains of the past those shackles that physically bound us together against our wills could, in the telling, become spiritual links that willingly bind us together now and into the future. Then that painful middle passage could become, ironically, a positive connecting line to all of us, whether living inside or outside of the continent of Africa. Well, the Gullah Geechee Nation is an extension of the continent of Africa. So we live in and outside of it. It lives in and outside of us. And so another very powerful, very powerful elder ancestor that I met many years ago who autographed a book of poetry. I chose to purchase a book of poetry from him to have autographed instead of a book of history, because I knew everybody after his crossing over into the realm of the ancestors would have a book of history of his. But very few would say they had a book of poetry by John Henry Clark. And so 
I purchased a book from him, and as I did, in New York, we talked and told him where I was from, who my people were. He was elated to have the conversation, to know that I was in the room of all of these others who would not let it lie, would never forget what our ancestors had been through. This is the time frame that some would deem now the Afrocentric movement, the time frame during the 80s and the earlier parts of the 90s where there was a new found consciousness amongst people of African descent, very similar to what we had done in the 60s before disco came in, where we had the Afro pics, you know, and the red, black, and green flags flying, you see, where we were returning to consciousness, where we were regaining knowledge of our story and then sharing it with the world through music, through dance, through clothing, through hairstyles, through realizing ain't nothing wrong with who God to make on you. And I just have to know who going to be and then take the journey. So when someone says to us today, slavery is over, why don't you just forget about it? Why don't you people stop telling that story? It would be an offense and a disgrace to our ancestors to ever do such a thing. And so tonight I honor the souls of Tom Feelings. I honor the soul of Dr. John Henry Clark. John Henry Clark did the introduction to this book, Middle Passage, that I want to read to you tonight because I feel it captures the essence of what we need to under and overstand about the journey that people of African descent took against their will to go from their motherland into the islands that we call the Caribbean and Caribbean Isles today and into the Sea Islands, which is the Gullah Geechee Nation today. Why we should no longer bastardize and exploit their story and allow it to be the current day, cotton to be picked, to be commodified and exploited as simply mechanisms of tourism where people dance, sing, and look cute, sew things and make dolls, and then articulate everything in this way, and everyone crack your teeth like this, and think like that, so now other rest of people know for true who he be, and think like that. And then walk around and have no right for teeth, we? Neither. But we know what I'm over here, and think like that. See, they don't mean for evil. For God. Mean for God. So as Dr. John Henry Clark wrote, nowhere in the annals of history, has a people experienced such a long and traumatic ordeal as Africans during the Atlantic slave trade. Over the nearly four centuries of the slave trade, which continued until the end of the Civil War, millions of African men, women, and children were savagely torn from their homeland, herded onto ships, and dispersed all over the so-called New World. Although there is no way to compute exactly how many people perished, it has been estimated that between 30 and 60 million Africans were subjected to the horrendous triangular trade system and that only one-third, if that, of those people survived. The triangular trade system was so named because the ships embarked from European ports stopped in Africa to gather the captives after which they set out for the New World to deliver their human cargo and then returned to the port of origin. The Middle Passage was that leg of the slave trade triangle that brought the human cargo from West Africa to North America, South America, and the Caribbean. This perilous trip was the most cruel and terrifying part of the triangular trade system, and its crippling effects are still very much with us today. And its crippling effects are still very much with us today, and its crippling effects are still very much with us today. To endure the Middle Passage required great physical strength, mental toughness, and spiritual resolve. Under ideal sailing conditions, a trip from Africa to the Americas could be completed in a little over a month, but conditions were never ideal during the Middle Passage, and the average voyage took from 5 to 12 weeks. It was 
not atypical to see a massive school of sharks darting in and out of the wake of the ships filled with human cargo plying the Atlantic. For miles they followed the battered and moldy vessels, waiting to attack the disease-ravaged black bodies that were periodically tossed into the ocean. Except for mutiny, death was the only liberation. These tormented souls of Shanti, Mandingos, Ibo, Fulani, Warlock, Kermanti, and others could expect from the stifling, fetrid hold of the ship where they had been cramped for more than a month and where the menace of smallpox was especially feversome and fearsome. Pinioned in the stench between the ship's decks, shackled two by two, the right wrist and ankle of one to the left wrist and ankle of another, the African captive struggled to breathe, struggled to find comfort on rough boards that tore at their naked bodies with each lurch of the ship. The captives' cries of grief erupted in several different tongues, their moans and wails a common chorus of misery and hopelessness. They were human ballast, abducted from family and friends, severed from a communal life that throbbed with compassion and possibility. The agony was so relentless, their deprivation so deep and terrible, that even the sky became a faded memory. Amid their fear and anxiety, they must have wondered if they would ever see a palm tree again ever taste once more its sweet sap and brush against its silky leaves? Would they ever hear the thunder of Africa and stand in the warm and gentle rains that nourish their crops? Would they know again what it felt like to run in fields overgrown with elephant grass where golden calabashes glistened in the sun near the shrine of Obatala? In the dank, crowded hole which was about five feet high. The captives were confined in a prone position, occupying no more space than a coffin. On the larger slave ships, this limited space was further constricted by a horizontal shelf or platform in the middle of it, making it possible for a second row of captives to be shelved. This practice was particularly evident on vessels captained by the dreaded tight packers those slavers who chose to compensate for their anticipated losses by hauling more human cargo than specified by regulations based on the size of the ship. That is, if a ship were restricted to carrying 300 captives and the shipping company's contract called for 250, the captain would pack 350 people on board to make up for those who would likely succumb to sickness or be killed during an uprising. On the other hand, the captains who were loose packers believed that by giving the Africans a little more room with better food and a limited amount of exercise and liberty, they would reduce the mortality rate and thereby command a better price for the captives at the end of the voyage. However, because the profits from the slave trade were so great, most of the slavers during the 18th century were tight packers. John Newton. Now I'm going to pause there, John Newton. Let me help you all. Who is John Newton? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amazing Grace. There is a film that the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition in conjunction with the Friends of McLeod premiered in Charleston, South Carolina in 2008 called Amazing Grace, which was about William Wilberforce. And then there is another documentary, that not documentary, but film that dramatizes this real background behind this 
that really took place in Africa called The Amazing Grace. So with the word the in front of it, it's a different film. We have both of these films in the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition's Al-Kebulan Archive. So the next time you hear our people, people of African descent, admitting this song, Amazing Grace, do not think it is a spiritual. The spirituals come from the Gullah Geechee Nation. The spirituals come from African people. The spirituals are the official music of the Gullah Geechee Nation, and these were songs that our ancestors were moved to sing, even while in enslavement. So those songs brought us through. Those songs we still sing to this day and shout and we pray. But amazing grace, people have started to call it spiritual. It is not a spiritual, and it never has been. And it was actually pinned as a hymn by someone who enslaved our ancestors, John Newton. So now we pick back up with John Henry Clark's words. John Newton himself, a slave ship captain, witnessed this nefarious practice and reported on the captain's cramped quarters and the heavy leg irons that linked them together. Quote, Every morning, perhaps more instances than one are found of the living and the dead fastened together. After several voyages, Newton quit the slave trade, became a minister, and wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. End quote. With this autobiographical line that saved a wretch like me. Many of the Africans huddled in the darkness cursed their fate, while others prayed and shrieked in horror each time that hatch cover closed above, virtually entombing them. They had no idea what to expect. What cruel injustices still remained on the captive's list of degradation. Having been stripped from their homeland, from their gods, they could only guess what bitter misfortune awaited them. Were they to be eaten or sacrificed to the gods or the captives of their captives? The weaker ones in the hole begged their chainmates to kill them while they slept. Others slipped into severe melancholy and trances, while others simply went mad. Even for those who survived the lice, fleas, and vicious rats, there were still the violent crews waiting topside to torture the men and to rape the women. The Middle Passage, the second leg of the Atlantic slave trade, was a horrendous experience. And death followed the ships like the wind. The manacled and terrified Africans knew very little about the process in which they had been ensnared. While there were those among them who had experienced slavery in Africa, they were not prepared for this new form of captivity that dehumanized them and carted them away from their cherished homeland. Slavery in Africa before the arrival of the Europeans was comparatively benign. It was more akin to indentured servitude, where slaves sometimes even rose to the positions of influence. In this respect, it can be likened to the slavery of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. The Africans knew nothing of the enforced chattel slavery of the invaders, nor did they know who they were or from whence they came. Among the European invaders, the Portuguese led the way. Although their explorations came 800 years after the Arab slave trade began across the Sahara Desert and which later occurred with increased frequency among, along the coast of East Africa. For years, the Portuguese mariners had heard stories about the great riches of Africa and they began to trade with the African countries as early as 1434. During these early trading expeditions along the coast of West Africa, the Portuguese were mainly interested in gold. But soon, they envisioned in the African people reserves of cheap labor. Black humanity was suddenly more precious than gold. Let me say that again. Black humanity was suddenly more precious than gold. Black humanity was suddenly more precious than gold. By 1482, the Portuguese had erected the fortress of Elmina Castle on the west coast of Africa, near present-day Takoradi, Ghana, in order to stabilize the process of capture and detention of slaves. The Portuguese were followed by the Spanish entry into the slave trade. Yet even though slaves were taken in large numbers to Spain's New World settlements, the Spanish did not have a prominent role in the trade itself. Toward the end of the 15th century, the English and the French entered the slave traffic. 
However, the first real challenge to the Portuguese was the relatively late Dutch involvement. The Dutch were ruthless in their attempts to catch up, and in 20 years they established a monopoly in the West African slave trade. This lead was not threatened until the middle of the 17th century when the English and French intensified their activities. The Portuguese, Dutch, French, and English continued their participation in slaving on the west coast of Africa until well into the 19th century and even during the Civil War. And many of these captives were delivered to merchants in the United States. So take note now. Remember I said that the British had said they had abolished the transatlantic slave trade, and that was in 1807. The U.S. then wrote that as of 1808, they would also be abolitionists. Now you're hearing in 1860s, you still have people being brought in to the United States. Now I would tell you now, look for a book called The Wanderer and read about the last actually recorded enslavement vessel that came into this area, the Gullah Geechee Nation. And on Jekyll Island, we have a monument also recognizing that, and we recognize those who are the descendants of the people who had come over on the Wanderer during the ceremony that actually put that monument there. And you all have seen us on Gullah Geechee TV pouring libations there as well. So now we go back. To these words, to facilitate the capture of Africans, the Europeans devised a method of divide and conquer, pitting one African village against another, then taking the spoils for themselves. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Let me read that again. To facilitate the capture of Africans, the Europeans devised a method of divide and conquer, pitting one African village against the other, and then taking the spoils for themselves. So the next time you think about not working with some other people if you're a person of African descent, just remember that, all right? To facilitate the capture of Africans, the Europeans devised a method of divide and conquer, pitting one African village against the other and then taking the spoils for themselves. The Africans were soon confronted with a dilemma, either capture or be captured. To reject the guns offered by the invaders in exchange for other Africans often proved detrimental to a village because those same guns could end up in the hands of a traditional enemy, giving them a military advantage. Now, you hear that? Military advantages, strategies, divide, conquer. All of this goes into this practice of enslaving. The Europeans did not go to Africa bearing civilizations or to uplift the people they defined as savages. Their purpose was to pillage and plunder. Poor Europeans involved in the slave trade quickly prospered, improved their status, and acquired an undreamed-of wealth. By enslaving millions of Africans to labor on the plantations in the Americas, the Europeans dramatically rescued and reshaped the economies of their own destitute countries. The Africans could not combat this European desire for conquest. They came from societies where nature was kind, furnishing them with enough food, enough land. Their societies were governed by honor and obligation, and the land was neither bought nor sold. Let me repeat that. The land was neither bought nor sold. The land was neither bought nor sold. It's an African holdover in the Gullah Geechee Nation. Let me continue. In contrast, the European temperament was shaped in part by a thousand-year-old feudal system, which was a form of slavery. Europeans came from societies where nature was stingy, where brother competed against brother for his breakfast, land, and women. Europe was just emerging from the Middle Ages, a time when poverty and disease were rampant, an age haunted by death and damnation. The Africans had never dealt with such a fiercely competitive people, a people set on asserting its dominance at any cost. With the establishment of numerous small forts or large castles along the West African coast, the slave trade operated smoothly for the Europeans. Without the erection of these terminals, which were often under the control of Europeans recently freed from prison dungeons and given a new lease on life, the slave trade would have been a haphazard operation. So you see, take people out of one hold themselves and put them there to hold others. You all notice the connection. The forts and castles made it possible for the captives to be conveniently warehoused until ships arrived to transport them across the sea. 
Of the numerous coastal slave forts, most were located in present-day Ghana, a place the Portuguese called the Gold Coast, and which eventually became the hub of the European slave trade. If a sufficient supply of captives were not available at the designated fort, it was possible to meet a contract by procuring them from others nearby. Another prominent fort located on Gorley Island off the coast of Senegal was a central point controlled by the French. He doesn't mention it here, but Bunce Island off of Sierra Leone was another part of these enslavement locations in West Africa. The misery the captured people experienced in these forts or castles was exceeded only by the horrific conditions in the holes of slave vessels. To some degree, for thousands of Africans, these dungeons were harbingers of tragedy ahead. The captives were as tightly packed in the forts as they would be on the ships. At times during the early years of the trade, there was many as 300 to 500 captives imprisoned in a fort. And for the unruly captives who refused to obey the string, sting of whips, there was solitary confinement in small boxes with a hole at the top to allow the captive's head to protrude. After the slavers exhausted the supply of villages around the fort, they pushed inland. Millions of Africans perished during these raids on villages and on the long marches to the forts where their movements were restrained by coffles. Later, many more of them would die in the filthy dungeons. Each fort had a door of no return through which captives exited, leaving their beloved homeland for the last time. By the time they were herded down through the door and onto the beach, they had begun not only a journey across an ocean of despair, but on a nightmare of African family destruction that to this day continues to have a devastating impact on the psychological and economic well-being of black Americans. African captives found a measure of relief on the slave ships through revolts and mutinies, which were a common occurrence. One clear indication of this is the costly insurance premium into the sh that shipping companies had to pay. Lloyds of London, one of the world's wealthiest insurance companies, was virtually launched by insuring slave ships. Certainly the Africans did not accept their servitude peacefully. To deter the possibility of mutiny, the captives, particularly the men, were kept chained at all times, even during the brief periods topside when they were forced to exercise by dancing and jumping in order to protect the slavers' investments as well as to vent mounting hostility. These exercises were often accompanied by Africans playing banjos and beating drums or upturned kettles. Even so, the potential mutiny was an event that bothered the sleep of every captain of a slave ship, nor did the crew rest without fear. In fact, there was little rest for them at all as they faced an endless round of duties. They were lucky to survive one voyage and rarely made a second. The conditions of their employment forced them to deny the humanity of Africans, and all too often they began to question the value of their own humanity. There were successful uprisings in which Africans gained control of ships and were able to steer them back to their homeland. A memorable mutiny was led by Joseph Sinke in 1839. Sinke and the other rebels killed the captain and took over the slaver Amistad. They were eventually captured and tried for murder and piracy on the high seas, and the Amistad made a journey here to the Gullah Geechee Nation to Charleston twice. The Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition existed after I started the African Cultural Arts Network. The African Cultural Arts Network donated funds for that replica of the Amistad to be created and donated funds also for the statue of Sinke that still exists of North and New England. However, in the end, these men were acquitted of all charges. Other revolts resulted in the loss of crew members as well as captives. Those who would not mutiny restored to other forms of resistance, resorted to other forms of resistance. Women were often the most troublesome. Y'all hear that? Women were often the most troublesome. Women were often the most troublesome. They would devise ways of making constant, loud, and unnerving noises that would drive the crew to distraction. And, of course, there were many who chose suicide, mainly by jumping into the dark-infested ocean rather than allowing the Europeans to determine their destiny. Now, I'm going to give him a pass because, of course, he mentions the women distracting. However, they are not mentioning the women actually being engaged in the actual physical fight in the mutiny. 
and I'm sure they were, because there were many women here that once they got them to this soil and this land that's now the Gullah Geechee Nation, poisoned wells and were physically involved in the uprisings and the mutinies as well. But despite the miserable conditions, inadequate space and food, deadly diseases and the violence from crew members, millions of African captives survived, demonstrating their strength and implacable will. In humankind's shameful history of forced migrations, the journey of the Africans from their bountiful homeland to the slave market to the New World is one of the most tragic. It is a story that can never be told in all its gruesome details of the countless numbers of Africans ripped from the villages of Africa, from the Senegal River to northern Angola during the nearly four centuries of the slave trade. Approximately one-third of them died on the torturous march to the ships, and one-third died in the holding stations on both sides of the Atlantic or on the ships. It is estimated that 10 to 20 million arrived in the New World alive, 10 to 20 million arrived in the New World alive to be then committed to bondage. If the Atlantic were to dry up, it would reveal a scattered pathway of human bones, African bones marking the various routes of the Middle Passage. But those who did survive multiplied and have contributed to the creation of a new human society in the Americas and the Caribbean. It is a testament to the validity, the vitality, and the fortitude of the Africans that 10 to 20 million live through the heinous ordeal that many consider the greatest crime ever committed against a people in human history. Now, in all the years that I've owned this book, The Middle Passage, because of the pain and the horror of the journey, because of standing the ground that my ancestors stood on, where their blood, their sweat, and their tears fell in Sea Island cotton fields, and they stood and got pneumonia in Carolina gold rice fields, because of all of that journey, I have never in my life until tonight read these pages. I've looked at these images. I've skimmed the opening lines, and as I mentioned to you earlier, I've read the signatures and the things that were written to me personally. But this book came out in 1995. 1995. I'm going to let you do the math because it's 2013. And I have never until tonight read those words, even as I prepared for the show, I only knew that the words were there because I decided, I felt it, I was led to go to my shrine, pull down this book, look at what Tom Feelings wrote, and I saw those two pieces, those two passages. But then when I saw that the introduction was by Dr. Clark, I knew the words were there that we needed. And I skimmed the first two sentences and then I close the book until tonight. Because once again, I go to Tom Feeling's words. But if this part of our history could be told in such a way that those chains of the past, those shackles that physically bound us together against our wills, could, in the telling, become spiritual links that willingly bind us together now and into the future, then that painful middle passage could become, ironically, a positive connecting line to all of us, whether living inside or outside of the continent of Africa. I pray that tonight our story, my voice, this journey electronically is that spiritual link for you if you have never journeyed backwards through the Middle Passage. I pray that knowing that September is now Middle Passage Month in the Gullah Geechee Nation serves as the next part that links in the chain that pulls us all back together and gets us to 
under overstands the things that are still going on today that so connect back to this story that I've read through, shared through from the soul tonight with you. Because when I think of people being brought above deck to dance, to jump, and do all this, they want our athletes to jump. They want us to sing and entertain. What you think the drum and the banjo playing on the enslavement vessel was for? But to actually entertain those who enslaved the people. So, this weekend in Florida, we're not going there to entertain. We're not even going to edutain. We are going to yet again honor our ancestors, as we've done numerous times over the years, with the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Committee of Northeast Florida and the Gullah Geechee Nation's leaders, because our ancestors will not let us forget the story. They will not let us forget all of those African bodies that washed up on the shores of Old Town, washed up on the shores of Fernandina Beach, washed up on the shores of American Beach. They will not let us forget. And so I want to read to you what Mayor Sarah L. Pelican of the city of Fernandina Beach read on the third day of September of this year to the chagrin of some, but to the shout of many of them. Proclamation. Whereas the year 2013 marks the 500th anniversary of Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon arrival on the east coast of Florida, and whereas as part of the 2013 Viva Florida 500 event, it is important to recognize and acknowledge the diverse cultures and narratives that have contributed to Florida's heritage, and whereas the Middle Passage represents a perilous focal point of the Atlantic slave trade in which millions of people were enslaved and sent to the New World from Africa on ships, and whereas an estimated 15% or 2 million Africans died in the course of 500 years beginning in the late 1500s during transit to ports in the New World, and whereas the Middle Passage Ceremonies and Port Marcus Project is intended to memorialize Africans who died during the transatlantic voyage from Africa, and whereas the Middle Passage Ceremonies and Port Marcus Project plans to conduct ancestral remembrance ceremonies in all United States cities that were Middle Passage ports, and whereas the port of Old Town Fernandina followed the 1808 United States embargo banning the import of Africans, continued as an active Middle Passage port, and the slave trade here significantly increased under Spanish rule, and whereas slave ships used Fernandina as the location from which slaves were smuggled into the United States across the St. Mary's River, and whereas in 1811, the mercantile firm of Hiverson and Young built a wharf and warehouse in Fernandina for supporting the slave trade, and whereas tax records and ship licenses from Spanish Florida illustrate the slave trade in Fernandina with connections to Africa, the Caribbean, and Liverpool, England, and whereas the Old Town community is characterized by the history of its Spanish and African influences, and whereas the city of Fernandina Beach, in partnership with the Amelia Island Museum of History at Fort Clinch State Park, will remember on September the 28th, 2013, in Old Town, those who died via the Middle Passage or en route to Fernandina during a Middle Passage and Port Marcus Project Ceremony. Now, therefore, the city of Fernandina Beach, Florida, does hereby proclaim September 2013, as the Middle Passage Remembrance Month and encourages all residents and visitors to Fernandina Beach to remember the lives of those who perished during the Middle Passage and to explore the heritage and cultural diversity of Fernandina Beach, Amelia Island, and the state of Florida. And it is sealed by her hand. And we will seal with our hand, with our spirit, with the libation ceremony this weekend, Saturday, September the 28th, 2013, in Old Town, Florida. The blood, the sweat, the tears of our ancestors who, through the Middle Passage, ended up in Fernandina, Florida, here in the Gullah Geechee Nation. And I will lead that ceremony. I'm Queen Quet. 
chiefess and head of state for the Gullah Geechee Nation, honoring our ancestors always. God rest their souls in the Middle Passage. Thank you, God, for this your journey. And thank you, thank you for minded we who we be.